The following podcast contains explicit language. This is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on the Grand Budapest Hotel, the new Wes Anderson film. And joining me here in the Slate New York studio is the largest panel yet assembled for a spoiler special podcast. There's three other people here with me. I'll introduce them from my left. Is Chris Wade, audio and video producer at Slate and contributor to the Browbeat Culture blog. And I believe a not lover of the Grand Budapest Hotel, correct? Yes. Well, I'm a big Wes Anderson fan from way back and did find this movie often very delightful and often very genius. I have some major, major critiques with it. So I'm getting increasingly frosty on Wes Anderson's work. All right. Okay. Well, we brought you in in part because we do want to have a sort of um, tag team discussion. I wouldn't say that I'm anti this movie, but it's definitely not one of my favorite Wes Anderson movies. And we'll get into why later on. Forrest Wickman is also here with us. He is a a writer at Slate and... um, editor and a contributor to the Browbeat blog as well. And Forrest, you are definitely a pro Anderson and a pro Budapest Hotel person. Yeah, rah, rah, rah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And finally, we have David Hagland, who is a senior editor at Slate and uh, the editor of the Browbeat blog and other August things that I can't remember right now. We're happy to have him here as well. You are also a pro. I love this movie. I like all of Wes Anderson movies, uh, all of his movies, and I think this one might be my favorite. Wow. Your very favorite among all, all his films. All right. See, it's, it's not even in my top five, for sure. Um, but it is a big, perplexing, ambitious movie for him to make. There's a lot there to talk about. There's a lot there to, to love. Um, and maybe we should start off by giving a sense of the, you know, all the different influ- influences that went into this movie and what Wes Anderson is sort of trying to pull off with it. Um, first of all, it's influenced uh, heavily by the works of Stefan Zweig, this Austrian writer from, I guess, between the two wars. When did he die? He, mm-hmm. he died during World War II, correct? Yeah, he actually committed suicide uh, having been exiled from his native Austria. He wrote uh, a suicide note that has been described by his biographer as surprisingly jaunty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's so Andersonian. <laughs> I know. Um, and he, I think he was born in maybe the 1880s. Um, maybe actually a little bit later than that. But yeah, he was uh, kind of Austria between the wars, um, a, a nostalgist for Europe before it was uh, ravaged by Hitler. Right. And for the way of life that was disappearing, which Wes Anderson also chronicles or chronicles some fictionalized version of in this movie. And we should say this is not based on any specific work by Stefan Zweig. It was more influenced by motifs from all of his work. So should we try and summarize this this multi-part worrying mechanism of a story in this movie. Anybody want to start? It's set in the, the country of Zubrovka, we should say. Zubrovka, is that Zubrovka. right? Zubrovka. I think it's named after this um, bison vodka that's very good, that's Polish, uh, and sort of hard to get in the U.S. But well, I, I assume the it. vodka itself must be named after something. I wonder. There must probably. be some etymology re- to that word. A region or something. But, yeah, I mean, yes, it's it's this pastiche of all sorts of different places in, in Central and Eastern Europe, as far as I can tell. Right. It seems to be vaguely Prague-like, right? The city the city Nablesbad that the, uh, that the, the hotel is located in. And I don't know, there's a lot of, I mean, there's just, there's Schnitzler and Kafka and all of those currents from kind of German-Jewish culture of the first quarter of the 20th century everywhere in this movie. Yeah, and Zweig, we should note, was himself Jewish. Um, and I don't think that uh, the, that, that is a, a major theme in the movie, although we do have these fictional Nazis. Right. But there's not Judaism is not uh, a subject, though, this movie takes on a great deal. Um, It centers on uh, Gustav H., played by Ray Fiennes, who is the concierge at the Grand Budapest Hotel. And he's a, you know, a dandy, really, um, to 
takes great concern with his appearance and with everything in the hotel being just so. And he also has the uh, habit of sleeping with many of the wealthy older women who frequent the hotel. And we should say that this hotel is situated as a kind of a very fancy resort for the upper crust nobility types of Eastern Europe and kind of the European gentry. Uh, it's a winter ski resort, it seems like, mostly. Uh, very ornate, situated in a mountain. You have to take a fanciful little stepped gondola up a hill. Like a to funicular get there. kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, and I, I think uh, his uh, Gustav's love for old women is also sort of emblematic of his sort of conservative old fashioned streak in general, like his love for the past. And we should, I think, um, one other aspect that's inspired by Zweig is the. Um, structure of this movie, I guess, is also taken from one of Zweig's books. So we should just very briefly, though, it ends up not really being a big part of the movie. This movie starts in what appears to be the contemporary time where there's a young student who pays tribute to an author who's known only as author. And there's a statue. Um, Can I just say my first of many critiques of this movie is like from the first five minutes, the like overwhelming Wes Anderson-iness of it is almost like hilarious it's bordering on itself parody uh because it's like a long symmetrical tracking shot through an ornate of a little girl in like a pastel pea coat a beret a beret walking through this ornate cemetery to a statue that's just a bust of a man labeled author covered in keys hanging off of it and she pulls out a tiny ornately designed little pink book that has the story in and opens up and it cuts to the chapter marker. It's like so perfectly tidily Wes Anderson. And I mean, that'll be the theme of my critique of this is that Anderson, as he goes on almost more than any other creator I've ever seen continues to move more and more, not to referencing the wider world, but only referencing himself in this moving towards a singularity of style that is becoming increasingly substanceless to me. I think the question will be, and I want Forrest to finish his his summary of the structure for sure, because I think Mm -hmm. that's important. But but I think the question will be whether that for him to move forward as an artist would be to abandon that style and go to something more gritty, authentic, whatever we're opposing to the tweeness of Wes Anderson, or whether he can come around the other side of twee, as he seems to be trying to do in this movie, and really take on big historical subjects of, you know, politics and suffering. Yeah, I would say a couple things in response to that. First of all, I think his style is is very much evolving. And while many aspects still stick around, there's also, I mean, he also makes reference to all sorts of new things. He's incorporating stop motion animation more and more, more and more, which he does in this movie. And he's, you know, got these sort of very lush scores from Desplat, which he didn't have before. That said, you say it, you said it sort of borders on self-parody. And I think the movie is basically doing that deliberately. It starts one of the like most common phrases used to criticize Wes Anderson is that his movies just feel like dollhouses where he's just playing with a bunch of dolls. And this movie starts pretty quickly with with a sort of long shot of an incredibly fake-looking dollhouse. And I think, and he even did a shot, um, as the critic Matt Zoller Seitz pointed out, uh, back in Royal Tenenbaums, he just did a shot of a dollhouse, which I think is maybe just an in-joke on this. And and then <laughs> lastly, I think that the movie itself is kind of a, a tribute to all of these little frills and flourishes, which it also acknowledges are totally ridiculous, especially in the face of of you know war and Nazis and all these atrocities. And yet they're still you know full of joy, and they brought me tons of joy watching this movie. And I think. That's enough. Yeah, and the movie is actually a defense of 
of that style and that um, aesthetic concern in the face of atrocity. Right, I mean, in the sense that the Ray Fiennes character is clearly a model for Wes Anderson, right? And the hotel right. is is Wes Anderson's career. The hotel is sort of Wes Anderson's creative project. But let's get back to the to the temporal structure really quickly, because I think that's important for this sense of nostalgia that's built really deeply into this movie. Yeah, so we get the statue of this this author, and it, then it does actually sort of get uh, broken down a little bit, because we go from there to the actual author back in the 80s or so, uh, who... Played by Tom Wilkinson at that point as an older man. Yeah, as an older man. And he starts saying that while he wrote this book, he actually was just somebody else's story. And so we jump back to uh, when this same author was younger in 1968. He's played by Jude Law, and he meets... um, uh, the character played by F. Murray Abraham, who we later learn is Zero, and I think it's not supposed to be totally clear at first, but Zero, jumping back to 1932, uh, this, it's very Inception-like, I felt like, going down all of these levels. Or ornately carved Russian dolls. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so then back in 1932, we're with Zero, this uh, young boy who uh, wants to be a lobby boy because he admires uh, Gustav. And, and so that's where the bulk of the movie takes place. Right. So the central relationship of the movie, after all of these various layers are, are, are tunneled through and you get back to the 1932 time frame, where the central relationship will be between the young Zero Mustafa, played by a newcomer named Tony Revolori, and, uh, and Mr. Gustav, played by, by Ray Fine. So their friendship and their kind of mentorship becomes the heart of the movie. Yeah, and I thought their relationship was really touching. There's another important relationship, which is between Zero and Agatha, who's played by, I believe it's pronounced Saoirse Ronan? Saoirse. Saoirse. Yeah. Um, so they, uh, she works at a bakery, which turns out these exquisite little pastries, which are also both uh, thematically and, and even narratively important in the movie. Um, and they meet, fall in love, and from that point on, basically everything Zero does is either to protect Gustav or to, you know, pursue this this love with with Agatha. Although we should say they meet when we say they meet and fall in love, it should be noted that we are told they meet and fall in love, and only see them after all the actual parts of courtship have t- have already taken place. Yeah, that's yeah. well, that's sort of how romantic love works in Wes Anderson. I think. Yeah. I mean, and, it, and it's why Moonrise Kingdom, which so many people found deeply moving, I found utterly delightful and pleasurable to watch and very funny in parts, but completely unengaging on on that level. He doesn't seem interested in, you know, romantic relationships and showing how they develop. Instead, they they're assumed, right? And their significance is assumed and then they go on to play some part in the the caper story that's the center of the movie. Yeah, but let's maybe uh, peel through the plot cuz I think it's actually pretty easy to take on. Can I uh, before we go to that, can I just briefly very briefly sort of defend that? Yeah. I do think the same thing that the same sort of small thing that's not explored that much in depth that brings uh the two young lovers together in Moonrise Kingdom is I think it's fair to assume the same thing that brings together uh Zero and Agatha, which is basically in Moonrise Kingdom they come together through uh like all of these books and paintings and the, the, the movie ends with a painting of this creation they did on the beach and I think it's about sort of them coming together through their love and I think it's about Wes Anderson's love with his new, uh, with I don't know if she's new, his girlfriend who the movie is dedicated to. This movie I think the same way you can see how Zero and Agatha would bond because they're both into the sort of these fine touches on things and Zero loves the way the hotel is run and Agatha has this talent for making these sort of very 
dainty but perfect. Counterpoint, we do not ever see whether or not Agatha likes her job or not, and we are never even shown in what case they would actually interact in real life before it is revealed that they are engaged. No, I I think, (laughs) and and I do think that part of the frustration of watching uh, one of these, especially kind of post-Rushmore Wes Anderson movies, is is that he tries to pack so much in. They're so maximalist. In Royal Tenenbaums, you have something like eight different character arcs, and it's very hard to keep track of them, especially at first, and how they all resolve themselves and why everybody's acting so insane. But then as you rewatch it, uh, and many of these Wes Anderson movies that have come out since then, which tend to be in this pattern, it's easier to keep track, and often I discover there is kind of a surprising poignancy in how each of those characters play out. I don't know now whether this movie will be like that, and I'll find... As all of these things um, that are more emotional that I didn't notice the first time around, I will love it regardless. But that that is part of the reason I'm not sure whether it's you know in my top two or three. Well, this is like one of those rare movies that I actually wish was longer uh, because I wanted that backstory. I wanted more plot. I wanted all these characters to be fleshed out. I and... agree, especially at the end, which we'll get to. I think the epilogue happens way too quickly and, mm. and leaves the viewer really not sure how to you know balance all the conflicting emotions that we have about this this huge cast of characters. But let's quickly get through the caper plot. Let's just get boring for a second let's and turn on and, and the go through the caper. Pizzicato strings and be borne along in an elaborate montage through this entire movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and then we can get to arguing you know the all the the various merits and, and demerits of the movie. So who wants to take it away with the caper plot, David? So uh, very early in the movie. Uh, a woman played by Tilda Swinton, who's called Madame D in one of the movie's uh, many cinematic allusions. Uh, this one to O'Fools. Yeah. And the earrings. Yeah. And Madame De. So she she dies. And uh, she was a very wealthy aristocrat. And Gustave uh, whisks himself away to the reading of her will, where it's discovered that she left him this priceless painting. And we also meet her family, who are a bunch of murderous thugs. Right. Oh, and we learned that she was the victim of foul play at that point, right? Or do they not know? A little, a little later, but... Yeah, not them. quite yet. Although there's there's a lot of foreboding, right? She has a servant, played by Matthew Amalric, who is trying to get, get a message to Gustav and failing. We later learn that message is that there's actually a second will in which he's given everything... Uh, but before he's able to get that message to him, he's murdered by the character played by Willem Dafoe. And just in a background, as Dana mentioned briefly earlier, we are we do learn that they have a very Mad- or Gustav H and Madame D have a very intimate relationship in which he supports and provides comfort and also uh, you know compliments to her. And just like being there for her in her solitary end years. Yeah, and his fa- her family hates him. And also the, the, the question of his sexuality is, is raised here. It, it seems clear that he's bisexual or pansexual or something. I mean, he sleeps with these older women, but he's, he's very effeminate and he doesn't really dispute the, the charge uh, that um, Adrian Brody keeps loving against him, that he's gay. Um, he says it much more cruelly than that. Anyway, um, it turns out that Madame de was murdered. And they try to pin that murder on Gustav. So then he's you know, fleeing not only from the family, but also the law. Right. So then a lot more cinematic history gets folded in because he gets put in a maximum security prison, which he escapes from sort of grand illusion grand or illusion, great yeah. escape style. Totally. And uh, Which you know, is also where we learn that there is some kind of a fascist element moving into the country that they are in. They're pulled, their train is stopped by a military detail clad in gray and black with black lightning bolts on, on their... Um, 
outfits. Right. So there are these kind of faux Nazis designed by Anderson, which we can also get to mm-hmm. what that's all about in a minute. So so as this caper plot starts to unfold, it becomes the job of Gustav and Tony to recover the painting, which they've hidden, it will break out of jail, recover the painting, which they've hidden, eventually find the secret letter inside the painting, revealing that the entire hotel and all of Madame Day's fortune has been left to Gustav H. And what other problems are they trying to solve? Escape Willem Dafoe? I don't know what Conceal else. Conceal Zero's relationship with Agatha so she is not put in danger, though she eventually is, all the while being pursued by a very uh, sillily intimidating Willem Dafoe. Yeah, and just survive the Nazis in general. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, I think that that counts. We can get to the end when we get to the end, but I think that counts as a plot summary. So now I just want to talk about, like, what is going on? What is Anderson trying to do here? I mean, we haven't really mentioned how all of this looks, but, you know, if anybody wants to talk about the design and the look, I mean, it's sort of predictably for Anderson, but also, you know, going down some some different roads, as Forrest pointed out, including some stop-motion animation that kind of recalls Fantastic Mr. Fox. Using kind of all these great game-like, dollhouse-like animation techniques, he creates this whole you know, believable and yet fantastical and whimsical world of mid-century Europe in decline and this fascist force looming over it. But so why is he doing that? I guess I sort of, I want to understand kind of, I don't know how else to put it, but sort of the moral valence of this movie so that I can understand whether it's true that Anderson is sort of pushing into new territory and trying to create something new, or is it that he's kind of trivializing the period between the world wars by turning it into an occasion for playing with the dollhouse. I'm not really making either case. I really kind of feel like I need to see the movie again. I wish I could have seen it twice before writing on it. But I tended to feel uncomfortable when moments of real life suffering or violence came into this movie, which they do more than in most Wes Anderson movies, I would say. He has movies before where an individual character has died and the death has been mourned. And I tend to find those scenes in his movies sentimentalized and uncomfortable and that he is not comfortable with emotion. Like, I've written about that about him for years. But when it gets to be on the scale of, you know, quasi-Nazis moving into your country and, you know, kind of wiping everyone out. Or, for example, Jeff Goldblum's death. We haven't talked about Mm -hmm. that, but he plays the estate lawyer for Madame Day, who is sort of horribly killed by Willem Dafoe in this scene that's comical, but also gory in a way that Wes Anderson very rarely does. And those scenes did not sit well with me. I didn't know what to do with them. It wasn't that I wanted it all, that the, the bad stuff to go back in Pandora's box and have everything be cute. It was that I wanted him to spin out some of that darkness and suffering a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, this movie could actually be compared uh, somewhat, I, I imagine, unexpectedly to Inglorious Bastards, which is also about Nazis and also, I think, really a defense of movies as movies. To me, all of that worked because I think you really do have this sense of of fear and death and of destruction that Gustav is sort of trying to survive. And he's clinging to these ideals that he has of making things pretty, making things uh, precise, you know, attending to the small details. He's trying to keep those ideals aloft in horrific circumstances. And there are many funny sequences in which he does this, like when he's in prison, he's bringing slop to all the other prisoners, and he's basically acting as the concierge once again. Um, But Anderson, to me, seems very aware of, of what he's doing with those ideals and how he's representing them. So, for instance... Uh, late in the movie, there's this key line where uh, somebody says, and I, maybe some one of you can remember who says that um, Gustav was really from, you know, his world, mm-hmm. his world was gone. You know, his world had died um, before he did. And somebody else says that, well, that, you know, maybe that essentially implies that that world never really existed. 
that that he he clings to these ideals that are just that they're ideals they don't they there was never a time in Europe or elsewhere where they actually you know dominated and everyone kind of enjoyed um, the pleasures that he's committed to but he's still committed to them he still thinks these are the the fine things in life and we should all try to enjoy them while we can and I think that's one more reason that the narrative structure is really important because what we're getting isn't necessarily I mean it's clearly not actual history um, and it seems like what we're getting is through all these narrations is a story as told in a book as remembered by somebody else who told it we're looking back on his own life so there's you know there's a lot of filters of nostalgia and yeah, idealization there's sort of there's like there's kind of a long game of telephone that gives us this really weird uh, totally fictional world I mean my big problem with all that is that we exist in this world only in this like very stilted like crystalline structure of you know perpendicular tracking shots and 90 degree whip pans that make everything like so perfectly crisp but at the center of it all we get are indications of like character archetypes to serve this story that i found lacking in any kind of detail or perspective. It's all from the outside. There's no in- interior like motivations. These people just are because they're painted that way. Um, and, you know, I, it's not that I disagree or not that I feel that every movie needs to like feel like it's springing organically from within itself. I mean, I love some pretty ridiculous stuff, but the problem is uh, coming at this story from a way where, where you only see this wound up clock mechanism it's more indication of something rather than the original itself, and that's the thing that I problem is that, or the problem that I have is with Wes Anderson increasingly seeming like he only references Wes Anderson instead of any idea feeling new or original. It's like that same thing, but this time with Nazis. Did it feel new and original to you oh, guys? Oh, completely. Yeah, and I and I also think that yeah. that his world expanded in this movie. I mean, he's taking on this world historical catastrophe and that's totally new for for his work likewise i thought moonrise kingdom which is also one of my absolute favorites of his had had more to say about love and, and romance obviously than than you think dana but also than any of his previous movies like in my opinion like i think this moonrise mo- kingdom had some nice things to say about growing up but when it came to exactly what chris is talking about like actually i know he's not a psychologist that's not his thing right but still he is writing characters about people who experience real things that we experience falling in love going to war losing someone and i don't feel like He's able to connect with those emotions in some way. Like, this movie to me feels like a sequence in, uh, in Royal Tenenbaums where somebody was reading a story and we saw the story that they were reading. So it feels like something within one of the wider worlds. He's so much himself, it's impossible not to compare him to his earlier works, which is something that you could maybe talk about. And I have a good quote about that I want to pull out later. But it's a thing where, like, in Rushmore... The stylization of the world, the precision of it, the way it's constructed with all those same things, the very perpendicular tracking shots, you know, the whip pans, the slow motion and stuff, it works so well because it's how Max Fisher views himself, and that's the way that he conceives of the world. So we're seeing this world through his eyes, and so the stylistic the stylistic elements fit the narrative in a complimentary way. Might you not say that about Monsieur Gustave? This is, and in fact, it's explicit in this movie that you're seeing it through the eyes of a character who, you know, cares about all of these small touches in hotels and ornate little pastries. I mean, I'll buy to a certain extent that the way that it's narratively, like, 
played hot potato through the narrative lenses that we're seeing this thing and that it is about an, uh, you know, a guy who is very dandy and this is very like a dandy perspective of the world. But to me, it just felt like an elaborate, you know, crystalline structure that's just like suspending this little piece of paper inside of it instead of the world existing to support the stylistic structure. It's the structure supporting the story instead of the story supporting the structure. Well, I guess what I want to ask Wes Anderson or, or anyone who is you know, making a wholehearted defense of this movie is if it's true that he's thematizing this himself, he's growing as an artist, like let's allow that, and that Monsieur Gustave is a figure for him, and that he's precisely making something about how creating a crystalline clockwork universe is you know, this way of clinging to something good in the world as evil closes in on you, then what... What is his relation to what's outside of that world? You know, I just feel like at the moment that the, that that comes, that, that Jeff Goldblum's fingers get chopped off by a door and he's horribly murdered, right? Like or it, that to, to get into the spoiler at the end, that Monsieur Gustave himself, off screen and only related to us in a voiceover narration, is shot by the pseudo Nazis, right? And and Agatha, the beautiful Shirsha Ronan character, who's this pure-hearted pastry chef, dies of typhus or something horrible, right? So when these things happen, what is his relation to them, and what is like, what relation is he trying to create? In, in the viewer. Like, there's no tension between the um, content. I don't feel that true sorrow. I don't feel tension. that sorrow and that suffering so, really intruding on Monsieur Gustave slash Wes Anderson's world. I mean, I think the, I think the point is that it, if we're going with the, the idea that it's this crystalline structure, that we're supposed to see the cracks. And basically, I think what this movie is, is it's about all of these small details and how lovely they can be and how ridiculous and... Uh, how ridiculous they can be up against these world atrocities, and yet they still can bring some joy. And in some, and in, in fact, they can even be a comfort against these things. But, but see, but I we're never... supposed to see Gustav as totally ridiculous, and that's in fact where, like, that tension is where a lot of the humor comes from. There's ho- these hilarious lines, like where he uh, is talking to Zero, and he says, "You goddamn fascists, get your hands off my lobby boy." Or later, when he meets the Death Squads, and he says, "You're the f- first of the official Death Squads to which I've been formally introduced." How do you do. That's a hilarious line that defines that relationship exactly. And I think this movie is very good at that. If you want to say that you can't like, I I do think if we're talking about our larger responsibility towards World War II and the Holocaust and what kind of stories we can or cannot tell... I'm, well, believe me, I'm not asking him to tell yeah. some sort of dreary, hand-wringing story about the Schindler's Holocaust. List. Right. I don't want him to lose his, his Wes Andersonness or his whimsy. Mr. Gustav is a hilarious character. He's beautifully played by Ray Fiennes. I mean, this movie is totally full of joys and delights, minute by minute, as you're watching it. You know, I think there was just there's just something about these larger themes that he's grappling with that made me feel like the grappling was happen- happening in some place that wasn't quite on screen for well, me. Well, this is partly, I think, where, for me, his style has evolved and grown. But for other people, I'm sure, like you, Chris, and I'm, I'm sure others as well, will, will seem to have shriveled or, or, or shrunk, uh, which is that he's increasingly uh, using his this, this stylistic touches that were maybe um, kind of bracketed in Rushmore have, have taken over. And to me, what that's doing is the whole movie it becomes sort of an argument for his art and for art itself. So that, you know, it's not like you see this sort of semi-realistic world within which there are some very Wes Anderson-y touches. It's like the whole world that he's presenting is viewed through this lens. And to me, like I said, it's comparable to the moment in Inglorious Bastards when we suddenly get 70s-style, you know, 
titles over the character and Samuel Jackson's voice comes on and we hear a voiceover. It's all ridiculous, but it's an argument for the movies as movies and for the joy that they provide. Right. And also, I guess, I mean, to, now I'm taking Wes Anderson's side and Quentin Tarantino's, I guess, also for saying that we can take on these things, these huge, horrible, unanswerable questions of history from where we are, right? That we don't have to imagine ourselves back into a pre-existing framework. It doesn't have to be Schindler's List. It doesn't have to be something that has been accepted by the culture, that art can continue to deal with those problems. I mean, that seems like a great stance to take to me. I just don't necessarily feel like those two movies, either of them, are quite accomplishing that. Yeah, and again, I feel like to really portray that, there would have to be um, some, any moment in there where the style actually felt at odds with the content where, like, if he wanted to portray this very the stylistic elements of this film as as you're arguing for us as met- metaphorically symbolic of the the beauty of the world that Gustav H inhabited then i would want to see actually like a dark moment where something we saw in this very face style something bad happen and feel that tension between like real bad things happening and the style that he is filming everything in but everything is like, I mean, the worst that happens is that Jeff Goldblum loses a few fingers, which is very jarring in that movie. But I, I guess it just doesn't go far I, enough to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised you felt that way because it felt to me like this movie has a lot of that. The Goldblum character is maybe the most memorable example just because it's so grotesque. But there's also his cat just before then. And like Gustav himself is killed by death squads. And I think but that... But the cat going out the window is played for kind oh, of totally black for comic laughs, slapstick. The same like, way the death shocking. of the dog in Moonrise Kingdom, which is something that really stuck in my craw in, like in that movie. movie. Royal Tenenbaums, he kills a <laughs> yeah, dog at the end, true. too. He just likes to kill pets. And I think Add a score to Wes Anderson all Bigo. over his movies. And it's always sort of buried below. And I, I generally don't notice it but the for, first time. But the, but the more I watch the, his movies, the more very sad they, they seem, in addition to being hilarious, which is the number one thing I like them for. I would make the case that the cat scene is actually played both ways, so that when he throws the cat yeah. out the window, it's hilarious. Is it Adrian Brody who throws him out the window? Yeah. No, I think it's Willem Dafoe, right? He's holding this cat that belongs actually to the Jeff Goldblum character, Probably I believe, much, right? Yeah. The, the lawyer. And and it's, it's shocking and comes out of nowhere and I think very, very funny. But then you get a shot of the cat on the pavement and there's blood and it's it's that is shocking in a different way. It's not it, it, you might laugh a little more, but this time with a kind of feeling in the pit of your stomach. Like yeah, a, he's definitely pushing it there on purpose. I'm not saying it's like it's it's not deliberate. You know that he's doing the Jeff Goldblum fingers, the shot of the cat. Also, there's more cursing in this movie than there is in your average Wes Anderson movie, and there's a little bit more sex. I mean, mm-hmm. he never really does sex, but there's a little bit of a raunchy, hilarious montage at the beginning of Ray Fiennes getting it on with all these various countesses around the hotel. All right. Well, we really could sit here and discuss it all day. A bunch of of things keep coming into my mind that we haven't brought up yet. But let's go around the table and each just maybe talk about something that really stuck with you, something you did like for the movie. I think we would all agree that anyone who's remotely interested in Wes Anderson should see it, right? Definitely. Absolutely. Uh, Yes, of course. Um, And I'll start, actually, because mm -hmm. I wanted to say something about your... um, your critique of the whip pans and the lateral, you know, just mm-hmm. the 2D framing and all that stuff that Wes Anderson is so known for, those very flat compositions with things moving across the a single plane of the screen. Of course, he does lots of that there. He does a lot of chase sequences that are based around gags having to do with that, people popping in and out of the frame. But there's a couple moments where he, he plays with that very self-consciously and funnily, too. And I'm thinking of that great slapstick moment when uh, when Ray Fiennes runs from the cops, remember? When Ed Norton, as the, the head of the, what would you say he's even the head of? The, the SS. 
He's the head of the, the secret SS. police, right? The zigzags in the movie, but it's basically the SS. The, the zigzags, right. So, so As he, a very sweet, doe-eyed SS commander who's very sympathetic to the main character. Oh, yeah. Ed, Ed Norton is so perfect in that role. I mean, he's one of those actors who can deliver that flat style of Wes Anderson dialogue perfectly. But just visually, there's this great moment where he actually does use depth of screen in a way that seems to be almost commenting you know, to his detractors that you know he never uses the 3D possibilities of the screen. So, so Ray Fine comes, sees Ed, Ed Norton waiting for him, and then there's this kind of very deep focus shot where he goes running off into the far distance. And I, I loved that moment. I loved it as slapstick, and, and I loved it as, as camera work as well. Yeah, um, and despite my, you know, deep problems and critiques with the tone and story structure of this film, uh, I have to say that it is, as always, overwhelmingly delightful, and there are some really, really awesome sequences in it. I'm specifically thinking of a sequence where uh, Gustav calls on the secret underground society of uh, concierges, that's an extended montage of different people cameoing as concierges of various European continental hotels, uh, which is funny. And then also a downhill winter sports uh, chase sequence, which is also very awesome and Done thrilling. entirely in miniature animation. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I just want to, uh, yeah, the uh, one last thing I wanted to say about Wes Anderson in general is uh, this movie reminded me of one of my favorite quotes about art and being an artist, which is... Um, Joseph Heller always used to get asked why uh, why he never wrote anything as good as Catch-22. And at one point he was quoted as saying, you know, people always ask me why I w- never wrote anything as good as Catch-22, to which I like to say, who has? And that's like <laughs> kind of how I think about Wes Anderson. I mean, when you make something that's damn near a perfect film, like Rushmore or Royal Tenenbaums, no matter how much I can critique him about folding in endlessly on his own self, his own self is pretty perfect, so there could be worse. Yeah, I agree with that, except my second movie besides Rushmore would be Fantastic Mr. Fox. Mm. All right, Forrest. Yeah, so like you guys, I think this movie reminded me more than perhaps any other besides maybe Fantastic Mr. Fox that Wes Anderson is just great at writing jokes and, and pulling off visual gags like the one you described or the the, visit, the prison sequence is pretty long. It's, I don't know, probably 10 minutes and it's nearly wordless and it's just visual gag after visual gag. Some of them are almost Looney Tunes style and it ends with Gustav just coming up uh, above ground and he's covered in dirt and everything and the first thing he says to Zero is just, good evening. (laughs) Yeah, this was maybe his funniest movie, I think. It certainly made me laugh harder on a first viewing than anyone save Bottle Rocket, which just cracked me up. Uh, but the, and the scene that I would would point to, especially since we can spoil things uh, here, is the the one that was maybe the funniest, and that's when uh, Willem Dafoe's character, this this thug called Joplin, meets his untimely end, which is at the end of that um, very funny. Uh, skiing sequence done in miniature, which happens maybe about 25% faster than it should. It has this kind of ridiculous zippy quality to it. And then at the very end, uh, Gustav is is facing his own possible death, hanging on to a cliff. And out of, you know, not out of nowhere, but unexpectedly, Zero comes up from behind. And if I caught it correctly, he shoves Joplin off the off the cliff, and uh, and Gustav shouts, "Holy shit!" Right, and this that... is right after he says, "Me thinks, me breathes, <laughs> me laughs." Yeah, he's he's always quoting romantic poetry, which yeah. is a, a, a um, habit that Zero learns from him. And he's quoting some here, thinking that he 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 might be doomed, and that then just you know shouted expletive kind of rings out through 
all the prettiness and everybody in the the audience I saw with just just broke down laughing. <laughs> That's actually an ongoing type of gag in this movie, which is that somebody's burst of flowery language or other sort of courtly behavior is interrupted by some kind of real life mishap, which if you think about it is sort of what, you know, I mean, that's kind of the movie's structure as a whole, right? It's about kind of beauty interrupted. All right. Well, more to be said. Maybe we'll see it again and talk about it again. But thank you all for coming in to talk about the Grand Budapest Hotel with me. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Dana. Thanks for having us. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.